despite um, Christina's kind concern this afternoon. <laughs> Can't hear? Ah, that's because I don't have this on. <laughs> it's called mindfulness in action. <laughs> okay, now can you hear? Yeah, okay. So I just wanted to first say that despite um, Christina's kind concern for me because she knew I was giving the talk tonight, um, I'm really happy to be offering some reflections about the Dharma on our last evening here together in this particular configuration. And I was, um, I don't know, reflecting on what might be helpful, useful, as we begin to perhaps, despite ourselves, not be completely 100% present and um, begin to reflect on going home and what our time in leaving this retreat might be like. So what I wanted to talk about tonight, what seemed to be, to me, to be somewhat helpful as a transition between here and our everyday life, is just some reflections about this Zen term, which is called don't know mind. I spoke about this years ago at um, Cambridge Insight Meditation Center, and I was really amused because we have these talks on Wednesday nights there, and I realized that the week before this particular talk on Don't Know Mind, a teacher was giving a talk that was entitled, I Really Don't Know. (laughs) So I think I could compound it and say, I really don't know, but this is both a practice and it's a realization. And so I'm going to talk about it really in both ways. It's something that we can practice being open and not assuming and not presuming. And it's also a realization because it has to do with everything being new and fresh here and now awakening here and now, the awakened mind here and now. Thich Nhat Hanh Thai quotes someone he calls the forest bamboo master, who said, everything I touch becomes new. Everything I touch becomes new. And I think it's interesting um, being here in this environment and reflecting on your usual everyday life that you most likely will go back into and just the sense of what the everyday life is composed of and it might feel not very new, you know? It might feel somewhat um, repetitive or particular conditions that you are completely sure that you're going back into. So everything I touch becomes new. That is this sense of realization. But I'd like, to, um, I'd like to begin with just a short story. Many years ago, a Zen master was interviewed on the radio in Cambridge. And because 
Korean was his first language. He was a Korean Zen master. His English was accented. He had a Korean accent with his English. And the interviewer and and he were having a really good conversation. The interviewer was very friendly and very interested in meditation. And so they went along chatting together for you know, 20 minutes or so, something like that. And Satsunim, this particular Zen master, kept using um, this phrase over and over again, don't know mind. You know, he kept using this same phrase, don't know mind. And then after maybe um, 20 or 30 minutes, something like that, um, the interview said, okay, you know, Satsunim, this is really interesting and I'm really learning a lot and I'm really interested in everything you're saying, but um, what is this about donut mind? (laughs) (laughs) And Satsunim, you know, being a Zen master, picked up on it right away, and he started saying, donut mind, yes, donut mind. (laughs) It's not the donut, You know, it's not the content, it's the space within the donut. (laughs) And then he started just, you know, talking all about that. (laughs) But it's true, you know, it is the hole in the middle. It is the, this is the meditative space. It isn't the donut itself, it's the space within. What is don't know mind? What is don't know mind? It is an openness. It's the capacity to be fluid. It's the capacity to let things change as they will change whether we are desiring of that or not. To allow change to happen in the natural way that it does, it's a receptivity and It has to do with a spaciousness instead of narrowing in or contracting or approaching life from any kind of limited point of view. Not pinning anything down as if we know. You could also say that it's a tangible sense of gentleness. And I want to read you something from a teacher I had many years ago um, when I practiced in a Thai forest monastery in northeast Thailand. There was this wonderful teacher there um, named Mahabua that was kind of like part of the, of the environment. You know, very, very um, natural person and very much part of his environment. Anyway, this is something that touched me, that he said. He said, those who have reached full release from conventional realities of any sort don't assume themselves to be more special or worse than anyone else. For this reason, they don't demean even the tiniest of creatures. They regard them all as friends in suffering, birth, aging, illness, and death because the Dharma is something tender and gentle. Any mind in which it is found is completely gentle and can sympathize with every grain of sand 
We're living beings of every sort. There's nothing rigid or unyielding about it. Only the torments of heart are rigid and unyielding, proud, conceited, haughty, and vain. Once there is dharma, there are none of these things. There is only the unvarying gentleness and tenderness of mercy and benevolence for the world at all times. So practicing, realizing, don't know mind, is the sense of being open to learning and continuing to learn, whether we're here in this particular nourishing environment or whether we're at home or whether we're at work or wherever we may be. Learning to see differently, to see with loving kindness, to see with wisdom, to see in ways that actually liberate our hearts. We practice reserving the tendencies that we have to come to conclusions, to sum everything up. I mean, you might have an idea right at this moment. The retreat was good, you know? The retreat was bad. The retreat was so-so. The retreat, you know, next retreat will be better. Um, oh no, I'm never going to go to another retreat. You know? <laughs> just, just these ideas where we are summing everything up all the time, where we don't know. We actually don't know. I have a friend who, who used to feel that. He used to do sit long retreats as a big part of his practice. And he would say he would actually never know what the retreat was like until he was back in his daily life for a while, you know, and began to kind of see how that had shifted or transformed different things. And yet our tendency is always to to try to sum things up. I've also known yogis, I don't know that there's anyone here, but I've known yogis who have had just horrific retreats and, you know, moment after moment of hell retreats, (laughs) that kind of a retreat, which probably everybody has at some point if you have a lifetime practice because of conditions in life. So that kind of, re- of a retreat. And then, you know, writing to me when they get home, got home and saying, oh, you know, oh, everything is better. Everything has changed. Everything has shifted. You know, so we can't come to conclusions or sum things up. And when we do, we just cause unnecessary suffering. Being open to the unexpected because always things are not as I expected them to be. Some of you may be familiar with the teacher named Joko Beck, who used to talk a lot about the wonder of life. And what I heard is that just before she died, you know, as in her last words before she died, she said, "Um, this too is wonder. You know, this too is wonder. <laughs> Tip O'Neill, actually, he's a, he's a politician, and his last words before he died were, um, weren't those honeydew donuts at Verna's delicious? <laughs> anyway. 
our practice is to listen to the longings of our heart instead of to the endless desires of the mind. You know, the endless commenting, the endless hunger of the mind. The sense of satiation, fulfillment within our hearts. Now, I don't want to confuse you when I use this term, don't know mind, because sometimes the instructions that we hear in this practice of meditation is to be the knowing. But actually, it's the same thing. It's the same as don't know mind. It's just the other side of things. It's still pointing to a kind of liveliness, a kind of openness, a kind of freshness. And it's really the difference between ordinary attention and what could be called meditative attention. Ordinary attention is always focused on getting and getting rid of and getting what I think I have to have, getting what I think I need. So paying attention from this very particularized point of view, centered around our central hero or heroine. You know, that's ordinary attention. That's the attention that is there for all beings. And then meditative attention is something that is broader. It doesn't have that kind of agenda. It's interested in whatever way things are. It's interested in a more global way. It's interested in a more comprehensive way. And it's interested in life without having a particular agenda. So it's a lot bigger. It's a lot looser. It's a lot more um, of a fluid kind of attentiveness. It's not based on past and future hopes and fears. There's this really good um, little Zen comic, and I have to say that Zen comics are not always all that funny, so I have to have to prepare you for that. But um, the comic is of an older uh, teacher and a younger monk, and they're sitting together. And the younger monk, his brow is kind of furrowed. He's looking, you know, unhappy. And you you think probably he's looking unhappy at his teacher, at the older monk. And then at the bottom, there's a caption, and the caption um, seems to be coming from the younger monk. And what the caption is, is, what do you mean, nothing is next? I warned you, that was not that funny. But, you know, what do you mean nothing is next? And from a certain point of view, we're always leaning into the next moment as if there is a next thing to come. Nothing is next. When we really understand this, and when we understand it to any capacity whatsoever, it allows us to relax. It allows us to rest quite a bit more in what is happening now. It allows us to appreciate the preciousness of what it is that is happening now instead of leaning into a supposed next moment. There's a kind of aliveness and vitality. And this is very different than describing, you know, describing one's experience. And and sometimes one can become very, very aware of this, this habit or this pattern of describing everything that is happening. 
you know, to maybe an unseen audience or maybe you became aware that um, throughout the retreat you were describing your experiences to one particular person in your life, you know, which I have to say, you definitely do not want to play out when you get home um, <laughs> because they're, they're, it's unlikely they're going to be uh, so interested in the nuances <laughs> of your in-breath and then what happened when you left the breath and then, you know, the things that we're really interested in and we really want to hear about. It's unlikely. Yeah, it's unlikely. The eyes are going to glaze over. They're going to, you know, fall over unconscious. So anyway, it's not, um, not suggested. But the tendency to describe is certainly a pattern that we can be aware of. Now to talk about this, don't know mine, in relationship, you know, apply to ourselves and to others because we go out into a world of relationship. And it's not as if we haven't been in relationship with one another here. You know, we have been in relationship with one another here. But we move out and we're in relationship with different people in our everyday life. So I wanted to read you um, something by Rumi. It's called Four Interrupted Prayers. He says, Four Indians enter a mosque and begin the prostrations, deep, sincere praying. But a priest walks by and one of the Indians, without thinking, says, Oh, are you going to give the call to prayer now? Is it time? The second Indian, under his breath, you spoke. Now your prayers are invalid. The third, uncle, don't scold him. You did the same thing. Correct yourself. The fourth, praise to God, I have not made the mistake of these three. (laughs) So all four prayers are interrupted, with the three fault finders being more at fault than the original speaker. Blessed is one who sees his weakness, and blessed is one who, when he sees a flaw in someone else, takes responsibility for it. Because half, half of any person is wrong and weak and off the path. Half, the other half, is dancing and swimming and flying in the invisible joy. So, what is this half? that is wrong and weak and off the path. When we are caught in our solely self-oriented agendas, we're off the path momentarily. We can step right back on right away, but we are off the path momentarily. It's too narrow for a life to have an agenda that has to do with something that is only personal. Because we don't even know what's going to make us happy anyway. You know, we have all these ideas about what is going to bring relief and what is going to bring peace and what is going to bring happiness. And certainly the culture, you know, certainly sells us a lot in terms of what we need to be happy. And it's hard not to breathe some of that in even as yogis. But we don't know. We have to look for this within our own hearts. In relationship to others, I think something really helpful is to link our motivation 
to the motivation of others, to try to find a way to link. And what I mean by this is to ask, why does one do anything? You know, why do we do what we do? And why do we sometimes do the most foolish of things? You know, why do we sometimes act or speak or say or do something that, you know, it's just utterly, amazingly foolish. And I hope you're with me on this one. <laughs> I mean, I know I'm talking about myself, but I hope that, you know, we're, we're unified as, as a group here. Um, usually, if we look carefully, if we look beyond, you know, what might arise in reactivity to this foolish thing, we might see that it's an effort to relieve pain in some way. You know, maybe it's an effort to um, relieve anxiety or relieve fear. Maybe it's an effort to find some kind of peace or happiness in the moment that we're unconscious of. And it is the same for others. It's no different when other people do foolish things. Yeah? It's because of, usually, this wanting to be happy. I'm, I would say, always to tell you the truth, it's wanting to be happy and it's wanting to find some kind of relief. And of course, beings do the most opposite thing that is going to help them find relief. You know, that it's really going to move um, one away from the depth of happiness that is indeed possible in this life. But to somehow find a bridge, to find a way to recognize that the motivation for all beings is the same to find peace and to relieve ourselves from the pain within the heart. So we're practicing leaving our hearts open and not shutting down. We assume intention an awful lot. We assume the attention of others, but we can actually only see the behavior and the actions of others. We can never know what anyone else's intention is. Even if we are, you know, thinking that we're crystal clear in terms of what that intention might be, it is not possible because we can't get any in anyone's head in that way. You know, sometimes people gracefully tell us, but it's, it's the behavior and the actions that are apparent to us. We can only know our own intentions. And I think this is a really wonderful aspect, difficult at times, but wonderful aspect of Dharma practice, is that we can begin to see our own. It requires some degree of honesty and a strong stomach at times, but we can begin to see how our intentions change from moment to moment. We can have an idea that one particular situation is only one intention. You know, I started off with a really good intention, but it can go south, you know, a few minutes in, and then we don't always pick up on that. We don't always see it. I think some of the power, one, one aspect of the power of sitting practice is that we get to see our intentions more clearly And we also get to see intentions that um, we had a really long time ago that we assumed we acted out of some noble or wholesome intention. And then we discover that that's not so. 
I remember um, a three-month retreat early on when I discovered this practice, and it felt like I was going back to intentions I had when I was two years old, and they were not good. You know? <laughs> you know, but it helps so much. It's not a, not a negative thing. It's a really positive thing to be able to see the intention, because everything loosens, everything shifts, everything changes. You know, it's not like getting stuck in any kind of heaviness or, or um, grief or um, shame or, or identification with it. It's just being able to see that um, I assumed something. And now that I see something differently, there's a lot more inner space that there was not before. Because I had things tied up in a particular story. Because we can't see the intentions of others, it is really easy to build up stories about the intentions of others, to speculate, and then to get upset regarding others' intentions. And I think, again, it's really important not to presume intention, but to respond in the best way possible, in the best way possible to actions. And what happens when we do this is it frees up an immense energy to be with others in a more alive way. There's, um, there's this person that um, he was named Samuel Goldman, and he's in this book of um, older um, Jewish um, people who lived in a retirement community. Um, in California that, and they were studied as they got older and older and older. And this is something that um, one, of, one of them said. He happens to be 92 when he said this. He said, I have a friend, a woman I already know many years. One day she is mad at me. From nowhere it comes. I have insulted her, she tells me. How? I don't know. Why don't I know? Because I don't know her. She surprised me. That's good. That is how it should be. You cannot tell someone, I know you. People jump around. They are like a ball. Rubbery, they bounce. A ball cannot be long in one place. Rubbery, it must jump. So what do you do to keep a person from jumping? The same as with a ball. You take a pin and stick it in, make a little hole, and it goes flat. When you tell someone, I know you, you put a little pin in. So what should you do? Leave them be. Don't try to make them stand still for your convenience. You don't ever know them. Let people surprise you. This likewise you can do concerning yourself. All this I didn't read in any book. It is my own invention. The unknowability, you know, it is really, it is really amazing to take that in, you know, to take in the mysteriousness of each one of us that we can know, of course, something about our habits and our patterns, and we need to. We can know the people that we live with and the people that we love and the people that we have problems with, and, you know, of course. But there is this basic unknowability that blasts the whole thing apart. 
And I think this is something that is enormously precious in our lives, is not to confine ourselves and not to confine anyone else, but to let ourselves, to let others have this unknowability where we're not limiting them or putting that little pin in and flattening them into some kind of paper doll and ourselves as well. What he's talking about, though, is wisdom, the difference between knowledge and wisdom. And of course, knowledge, information, all of this is important in a life. Each one of us has to know how much is enough and whether wisdom is actually emerging out of our getting more knowledge and more information. You know, it can and it doesn't necessarily have to. It has to shift into an intrinsic wisdom. So what he's talking about, Samuel Goldman, he's saying that he can count on this understanding within himself. He can trust it. He can rely upon it. And that this wisdom allows for love. This wisdom allows for tenderness and clarity. Don't know mind, as I said, is a practice as well as a realization. It's not just an ideal. And we can practice in all situations that we find ourselves in. In calming and quieting, in dedicating ourselves to listening instead of imposing. Sometimes at the beginning of a retreat I'll say, you know, not talking is really good. But try not to talk to yourself, because it'll really be a quiet retreat if you stop talking to yourself. So instead of imposing something, listening, a depth of listening to voices of wisdom within. Listening as a kind of basic sanity, a kind of basic sanity begins to reveal itself. And this basic sanity can be experienced in relationship too. I have um, two friends right now who are a couple and they're going through a very profoundly difficult time because of particular conditions and situations in their, in their lives. And one of them said to me, but we have this basic sanity between us. You know, like despite what's going on, because of you know, really having dedicated ourselves to the practice, we, we can touch this basic sanity within ourselves individually. But we also have this kind of basic sanity um, between one another. And I was really kind of struck by that and, of course, really happy for them. Talk about mudita, you know. So, half of any person is wrong and weak and off the path. Half The other half is dancing and swimming and flying in the invisible joy. How is this so? How is this possible? How is this so? In our opening to inclusivity, including more and more, instead of closing down and less and less, which can sometimes happen to meditators too, you know, kind of tunneled in there, but instead... The approach being including, expanding, 
encouraging this kind of expansiveness, a kind of self-consciousness begins to ease. And this has to do with practicing dropping our worries about ourselves. And it's, it's very, very interesting to just bring our attention to how much we might worry about ourselves. Certainly there can be the tendency to worry about others, you know, as a, as a pretty practiced habit to worry about people who are, are vulnerable or people in our lives that we think need our worry, we are obligated to worry about, that we're going to you know, somehow help them by worrying about them. There's kind of an odd belief in that, especially you know, 3 a.m. in the morning, that kind of thing. But to recognize how much one can also worry about oneself and to, to see if it's possible to bring attentiveness to it, to befriend what one sees in this dimension. Am I good enough? You know, am I better than or, or worse than someone else? Um, you know, what am I going to do with my life? 3 a.m., not a good time to ask that kind of question, of course, and that's oftentimes when it arises. But try to get to see what your worries are, you know, because they're, they're quite specific. It's not the same from person to person. They're quite specific. And to recognize what they are, to turn it into um, a blessing instead, you know, to turn it into, in that moment, metta, loving kindness. Even to use the phrases at that moment is very, very wholesome, very, very skillful. To recognize a worry is happening and to, to meet it with one of the metta phrases can be a very skillful way to approach the habit of worrying about oneself. It's not to say that we don't need to plan and organize and, you know, this and that, but worrying, it's pretty much out of our hands, you know? This body belongs to nature. This body belongs to nature. This mind belongs to nature. It all belongs to nature. When we try to claim it and worry about it as something different than nature, separate from nature, there is a gap there. We do find that there's something um, of turbulence occurring within the psyche. You know, each one of us is so um, unique and particular habits and patterns, and yet there's something... Um, you know, that is similar, that links us to one another as well. Um, but it's interesting to, to observe this. Um, some of us in, in this room have, a, have a, a dear friend who, part of the community in Cambridge, who passed away um, last fall. And um, he, was some, he was somebody who was, you know, kind of on the quirky side, very beloved, very loved and around for most of the years that the center has been open to, so almost 30 years, so around, kind of as an institution in the center a lot of the time. And um, he got a um, diagnosis. He was really healthy, totally healthy. And he was in his later, later 60s. And he got a diagnosis that um, something very bad was happening with his brain, that his brain was getting eaten away by some kind of bacteria, and that there was nothing um, that could happen. So I was, um, 
I was close to him. We had a comfort level between us. And so I saw him during this period of time, and it took about perhaps two months from the time that he got the diagnosis to when he actually died. So um, kind of kind of recognizing that because his brain wasn't working in the way that he, it had, and he was someone who you know had a strong intellect, but his brain wasn't working in the way that it that it was because it was being eaten away by this bacteria. But something was happening where all of his qualities were distilled. You know, so you could see the he had he was an extremely generous person. That was one of his qualities, and you could see that even though the brain was um, acting in a very strange way, he couldn't help but be generous. Because that's what he had practiced all his life was generosity. So he couldn't help but be generous. And he was still, you know, still offering whatever he could to anybody who would accept what he was offering. At the memorial that was held for him, there were a lot of stories about him um, sharing food with people. And I didn't know this because, you know, he would bring me... um, some food, but it was always an intact, you know, like a donut or something like that. And um, other people in this memorial service, so many people were saying that he would give them like a half of a donut, or, <laughs> you know, he'd take like a bite out, and, <laughs> and then he'd pass it on, and it was like the most normal thing. Everyone, you know, knew this about him other than me. I felt really quite good that, you know, <laughs> that I got a piece of cake that didn't have a bite in it. <laughs> um, so the, these different qualities, this, this generosity and this, um, this capacity to share himself and this kind of um, really, really good sense of humor and lightness and things like that, it was like that's all he was. He wasn't, he wasn't, um, didn't have this brain supporting it. So that's actually all he was. After he died, I had just this little bit of um, of a very potent, actually, image. I saw him, I was just sending him meta because I found out exactly when he died, so I was able to do that. And um, I, um, I had this image, this very clear image of him, you know, supposedly, who knows about these things, as Yanai pointed out so eloquently last night. But, you know, there are Tibetan teachings about the bardo and kind of places that one goes and this and that. So, so who knows? Who knows? Yes, who knows? No. But anyway, I had this image where I was seeing him um, walk in a very kind of um, relaxed way, you know, very, very much, um, very, very relaxed through what appeared to me I was making, making into a bardo, um, where he was just kind of walking and there were all these frightening um, creatures. There were demons and there were um, tigers and lions and they were baring their teeth. And I saw him just kind of go through just in a very relaxed way, just patting each one on the head and giving cake, of course. <laughs> you know, offering cake. So I don't know, I don't make anything out of these things, but it was a very beautiful kind of image. I'll just tell you one one other short story about him. Um, I saw him perhaps about a month before he died in an interview. And um, I had given him some mala beads um, a few years earlier. So I thought it would be a good idea for him to wear his mala beads for you know the time that he was sick. We didn't know he was going to die. But I was thinking just good to have the mala beads on, you know, just kind of 
Good to have the mala beads on. So um, I didn't know whether he knew what mala beads were at that point. I didn't know whether he would understand what I was saying when I said, you know, maybe you should get your mala beads. And um, so I, I took mine off and I gave them, I, I was holding them um, to show him what they were. And very unusual, you know, because he didn't do this kind of thing. He took my mala beads and he put them on his wrist. Yeah. So... I really like these mala beads. <laughs> so every so often, you know, I was glad. Oh, and then I went over to visit at his house, and I saw he had double mala beads on. You know, he had my mala beads, and he had his own mala beads on. His family must have put his own mala beads on him. So I was thinking, well, you know, do you need to kind of thing? <laughs> But of course, you know, of course, I, there was not a thing I could do. I had to. I had to surrender. But in the back of my mind, I was thinking, well, you know, maybe they'll come back to me at some point. Um, you know, who knows? Maybe they'll come back to me. So at um, the memorial service, a friend of mine very kindly went to the family and um, and asked about my mala beads, you know, because um, he already you know, didn't need the mollabies at that point. And, um, and the family said that they had buried him with, with my mollabies. And I thought, you know, the mollabies belong to nature, you know? <laughs> so be it. Nisargadatta hmm. Maharaj was a really wonderful um, sage who lived in India, died some, some time ago, decades ago now. And um, he... Um, before he died, he, um, his brain began to break up as well. Um, but he was like this, you know, big teacher. And um, so, so people wondered what was going to happen because he still seemed to be so luminous and so radiant and, you know, all of this. But people could see that he was maybe getting some dementia. And so they were wondering um, how this was going to go. And so someone went to him and um, asked him, you know, kind of, kind of, how is it for you, for for you, as a, as a great sage, as um, as um, you know, appearing to be phenomenally awakened? What is it like for you to get dementia? Yeah, and what he said, and this has always just really stuck with me. He said, "Why would I worry when I know I'm not my mind? You know, why would I worry if I know that I'm not my mind?" So what we call myself or me or you in a certain way is true. Yeah, in a certain way it's true. It's me, it's you. In another way, it's a collection of habits and patterns. One scientist recently said that it's actually more accurate to say that a person is a billion selves rather than one. You know, that each one of us is a billion selves. We have a billion selves. I really appreciate the billion part, you know, not like 10 or 100 or, you know, it's like a big number. A billion selves, many, many different selves. And we tend to assume these identities. I am someone who never does this. I am someone who always does that. And of course, we feel this way because of our previous experiences. But to encourage ourselves to explore and investigate instead of 
case closed. You know, this is the sense of limitation, the sense of contraction and confinement, even if we think that everybody in the world would agree with our self-identification. Bringing practice to the, this arena and exploring the I am, applying don't know mind. Now, of course, if everybody in the world agrees with our <laughs> ways of seeing ourselves, you know, we do want to take that information in and, um, and you know, kind of explore and investigate that, of course. Um, but on the other hand, it's relatively true, but it's not absolutely true, and that is really quite different. Noticing that thoughts are thoughts, that they're conditioned, asking who says it's always a pattern of conditioning in some way or another. And it's a huge leap from a pattern to an identity. It doesn't matter how often our patterns arise if we see them. And I really want to say this before going back into one's everyday life. Because um, you know, on a retreat, you get to really see your patterns get highlighted. But along with that comes the capacity to reach into one's inner resources as well. So it softens and it shifts and it changes and it loosens. In our everyday life, sometimes we get really stuck. And so we want to be aware that it doesn't matter how often a pattern arises if it's seen. It's when it's not seen that it's problematic. So we really want to love awareness. Every moment of seeing is a moment of a pattern loosening itself. And in every moment of a pattern loosening itself, it's a moment of freedom. We have understanding, insights. We see inwardly, seeing through a particular conditioned belief. And of course, we can find ourselves deeply conditioned. And I think we have to respect the power of conditioning because the same pattern arises over and over again. And in a certain way, we have to take care of it, we have to take responsibility for it. In another way, it arises out of our control. And in this way, we just want to keep observing and opening and releasing. We just want to unstick what's stuck. Rilke said that nothing in the world can one imagine beforehand. Not the least thing. Everything is made up of so many unique particulars that nothing can be foreseen. And yet we persist, right? And yet we persist. Something that Jerry said maybe this month, or so before he died, he said, I never thought it would be like this. I can't tell you how many people I've been with as they have been dying who have said that same thing in some way or another. You know, different um, words, expressing it in different ways, verbalizing it differently. But the same thing, I never thought the dying process would be like this. Yeah? What that means, what that implies is that there were ideas about how it would be. And yet, of course, how can we know? 
Countless yogis through their time here at IMS have made their way up the stairs to the bathroom on the second floor and have been in contact with that big poster that most of you have probably been in contact with as well, if not on this retreat, another retreat that says, try not to expect anything. In this way, everything will open up for you. And people have told me that it's kind of been a moment of, you know, that has has actually alleviated the pain that they were feeling in the moment before looking at this particular poster. There's a huge shift that takes place in our practice. This huge shift has to do with instead of over-focusing on conditions, we begin to learn from the conditions that present ourselves. We become able, capable of learning from the conditions that present themselves instead of being always battered around by what happens. In huge moments, in ordinary mundane moments, we begin to be able to learn, to soak it up, to understand, trusting that wisdom emerges out of a loving attentiveness. We can be guided by the wholesome, by loving kindness and by honesty and by compassion, less likely to use conditioning as our guide recognizing our efforts to try to find refuge in a false sense of security, relying on what has been known instead of what can be seen and revealed to us right here and right now, unexpected, always unexpected. That which is alive and vital now This is what is required to see our way through into something different, into something deeper, into something utterly beautiful and dear. Opening to life with its beauties and its sorrows. And Suzuki Roshi called Don't Know Mind, Beginner's Mind. He says we must have beginner's mind, free from possessing anything, a mind that knows everything is in flowing change. Nothing exists but momentarily in its present form and color. One thing flows into another and cannot be grasped. Before the rain stops, we hear a bird. Even under the heavy snow, we see snowdrops in some new growth. In the east, I saw rhubarb already. In Japan, in the spring, we eat cucumbers. This is beginner's mind. If we think we already know, it is difficult to see anything in a new way. Everything is just dry and boring and, and sterile and actually feels unbelievably repetitive. We have to realize the nature of things directly for ourselves, which requires releasing how we think things are to discover how things actually are. The meditative approach is to pause and to stop and to be still within our hearts. In our awareness of our fixed ideas about just about everything, it all begins to melt and dissolve. There is a gradual loosening of concepts and we find ourselves more available to life, less preoccupied, 
naturally responsive. As this kind of freshness enters, it allows reactions to be fully experienced as well as to be released. And it opens up new pathways, encouraging a kind of creativity, always encouraging a kind of creativity, discovering what we didn't even know was there. When familiar ways of being are questioned, when don't know mind is practiced with sincerity, we may initially feel like something has been taken away from us. You know, what is the new? Who are we now? How are things now? Where can I rest? Where are my fixed ideas about things that I use to find a kind of pseudo-safety or refuge? What happens when I don't have as much attachment to my assumptions? It's kind of like a familiar orientation point or many points are missing and it feels sometimes a little bit shaky. We're not as sold on the happiness of grasping. You know, we begin to inquire and investigate. We're not quite as oriented towards getting and getting rid of. And the wonderful thing is that we don't have to know. We don't have to pick up another identity now. I'm a great meditator. This is really the kiss of death, you know? (laughs) We don't have to know. And this, I think, can be a great relief. As you move into different conditions, and, you know, you move into different conditions, not tomorrow, as you just get up and move out of the hall, different conditions, of course. Continuing, don't know mind, within this shakiness, trusting in the heart, resting in the heart. And I'd like to be, end with, um, with something by Antonio Machado, which is called Last Night As I Was Sleeping. Last night as I was sleeping, I dreamt, marvelous error, that a spring was breaking out in my heart. I said, along which secret aqueduct, O water, are you coming to me, water of a new life that I have never drunk? Last night, as I was sleeping, I dreamt, marvelous error, that I had a beehive here inside my heart, and the golden bees were making white combs and sweet honey from my old failures. Last night, as I was sleeping, I dreamt, marvelous error, that a fiery sun was giving light inside my heart. It was fiery because I felt warmth as from a hearth, and sun because it gave light and brought tears to my eyes. Last night, as I slept, I dreamt, marvelous error, that it was the universe I had here inside my heart. Let's just sit for a moment.
May all beings be safe and protected. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings live in love and in understanding. Thank you. So please walk with steadfastness and deep interest in your life. Don't think that it doesn't matter because we're coming to the end of the retreat. It really matters. And we'll meet together for the last sitting, last night of chanting. So we'll meet together for the last sitting at 845. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.